If you can't preach after that, something's wrong. Amen. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles with me this morning and join me in Acts chapter 24. We're going to continue on in our series as we walk through the book of Acts. We only have just a few more weeks left to go, and we will finish up our series through this incredible book. As we've been talking about the church on the move, how the church was birthed, and then how it made a tremendous impact in the world. And so we're going to continue as we look this morning at the story of Paul. His impact as he continued to faithfully lift high the name of Jesus and to point people to Jesus. I want to read for us beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 24. And then we'll walk back through the text together. This is what Luke records. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody 
but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we would be able to see. You would open our ears that we would be able to hear. That you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down this main idea that will frame our time together in the text in Acts chapter 24. And it's this truth, opposition in the Christian life is often a divinely appointed opportunity to point people to Jesus. Opposition in the Christian life is often a divinely appointed opportunity to point people to Jesus. As we look at the text this morning, I want to remind you where we are in the story as the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus had given his disciples the command that they were to go throughout the world, beginning in Jerusalem and then expanding as they continued to travel around. They were to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were to lift high the name of Jesus, to point people to the reality that there was salvation in no one else outside of him. And so that's exactly what we've seen transpire over the last 22 chapters that we've seen the gospel continue to press into places where it had not been previously proclaimed. And one of the key architects of the message of the gospel continuing to spread is this man by the name of Paul. Remember, Paul's name prior to becoming Paul was Saul. In fact, he was a persecutor of the church. He was one who was sent out to try to stamp out the name of Jesus being proclaimed as the Savior of the world. His life was radically transformed when he met Jesus Christ. And as a result of his life being radically transformed, Paul can't do anything else other than point people to Jesus. It doesn't matter what city he goes into. It doesn't matter the opposition that comes against him. It doesn't matter what's going on around him. Paul has one message, and he proclaims that message wherever he goes. And it's the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to this earth, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who took your sin and my sin upon himself, paid for our sins on the cross, was Buried and rose again on the third day, securing salvation for us if we will trust in him. That's Paul's message. He continues to beat that drum wherever 
he goes. And as we've seen, it's cost him. It's cost him friends. It's cost him privilege. It's cost him prosperity. It's cost him sometimes freedom as he right now is in chains. And we see that at every turn, Paul looks at the opposition as a divinely appointed opportunity to point people to Jesus. As we walk through the text, I want to do it in such a way that unpacks for us exactly what's going on. And what I want you to notice is first the accusation in verses 1 through 9 that's brought up against Paul. So remember, Paul previously had been traveling around the Gentile world. He had headed back into Jerusalem to bring a gift to the church there. The church in Jerusalem, the elders had gathered together and they said to Paul, listen, there's been some accusations that have brought against you and you need to clear those things up. So what we would like for you to do, not because it's a salvation issue, but because it is a way to bring unity within the group of believers here in Jerusalem. We want you to go into the temple. We want you to take a vow and we want you to perform a duty there in the temple. And if you remember several weeks ago, what we saw happen is that it stirred up a group of people that the Jews from Asia had come in and they had lodged accusations against Paul. They said that he had come into the temple and he had brought a Gentile beyond a certain point that you weren't supposed to do that. And the punishment for that would be death. And so that's where Paul sits at this point. He's appealed to Rome, to Caesar. And yet there's some steps that he has to walk through first. What we're going to see here is one of those steps, one of those opportunities divinely appointed for Paul to point one more person to Jesus Christ. So notice the accusations that they lodge against him before Felix. Beginning in verse 1, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. And he had a spokesman whose name was Tertullus. And here's the case that they laid before the governor against Paul. I want you to notice what they say about Paul. There's two accusations that they make here. The first accusation was the most serious accusation, especially for someone whose duty and task was to keep peace within the Roman government. The first accusation that they lodge against Paul is that he is inciting riots. Say so that's what Paul is doing. And what we saw transpire in the temple in Jerusalem is an incredible riot that takes place. That people are stirred up to the point that the Roman government at that point grabs Paul and says, Whoa, 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 we can't allow this to continue on. The Jews of the day were calling for Paul to be executed. Paul claims his Roman citizenship, and it stops that execution, and it brings him here before Felix. So Tertullius says, listen, the first charge, the first accusation against Paul is that he is inciting riots. And I don't know if you noticed as we read through the text, but Tertullius was a master at 
flattery. Did you catch that? He was a politician of the first rate. He was able to appeal to Felix and say, Felix, we are so incredibly thankful for you. You have been so good to us. You have brought about reforms. You've brought about prosperity here, and we're thankful for that. But we want you to know that this man named Paul is doing everything he can to disrupt that. Felix, we know, we know that you would not want that to happen. We know that peace is of utmost importance, and you want to maintain that. And so the only logical explanation to maintain peace is to kill Paul. But you notice that the second accusation that they raise against Paul is more tailored to the Jewish people. So they say here in verse 5, he tried to profane the temple. Remember that accusation. It was the accusation that started this whole thing off. It was the fact that it was said of Paul, he had taken in a Gentile. Gentiles within the temple were only permitted in the first part of the course. They weren't permitted to go past a certain point. And so they had made the accusation against Paul that he had profaned the temple and was deserving of death. I don't know about you, have you ever had someone falsely accuse you of something? Say something about you that was not true. Or maybe that was not really the way that it happened. Maybe it wasn't a fair representation of the story. You know, I think about Paul in this situation, and I think about from Scripture all the way through, what we see transpiring oftentimes is that believers, Christians, have accusations lodged against us that are oftentimes unfair and uncharitable. That's the case here with Paul. The things that were being said about Paul were not true. And if you've ever experienced that, if you've ever sat through someone accusing you of something that is falsely a representation of what happened, it's not even close to being true, then you know what Paul was experiencing here. But let's think about that in terms of us as believers. Oftentimes, we experience the same thing in this world. You know, I thought about it this past week. What were those accusations and what are they today? Accusations against Christians that are not true, that are unfair, that are uncharitable. I mean, things that we would look at and say, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we believe. Accusations lodged against us, things like, you're just incredibly narrow-minded. And that's always tied to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we as Christians believe that there is no other way that we can be saved from our sins outside of what Jesus Christ did for us. Salvation is only possible through his death and through his resurrection. There are not multiple ways to get to God. And the accusation lodged against us when we proclaim that oftentimes is 
you're just narrow-minded. You're just uneducated. You're ignorant of the reality that there's multiple ways that someone could get to God. And we look and we say, no, we're not ignorant. We're not narrow-minded. We're simply proclaiming the truth of God's word. There's other accusations that are lodged against believers, especially in a culture, let's all be transparent with one another, that is moving as fast as it can away from any respect of Jesus Christ. Jesus as a teacher, maybe. Jesus as Lord, no way. But we live in a culture that is very much emblematic of the culture we see in the first century. Where people were looking at believers and saying to them, you are absolutely crazy. How can you stand and say that there's only one way to get to heaven? How can you stand and say that what the scripture teaches about morality is actually true? How can you stand and say that this is what marriage is? Don't you realize that you are simply bigoted? You are uneducated. You are ignorant. Oftentimes, those same accusations that were lodged against the church early on in a hostile culture are lodged against us today as believers. And here's the thing. That should not surprise us. Let me say that again. It should not surprise us that people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, think we have lost our minds. Shouldn't surprise us. We ought to recognize that accusations will be lodged against us, and oftentimes they are unfair and they are uncharitable. But they're coming. And I want you to know they will continue to come. As long as we lift high the name of Jesus, as long as we remain fixed on Scripture as our primary authority, we will continue to have those accusations lodged against us, unfair, uncharitable, but they're coming. Just think about that for Paul in this moment. Their sole goal in lodging those accusations against Paul were to kill him. And I want you to notice that the same thing holds true for us as believers in this world. Our enemy is not the people who are lodging those accusations. Our enemy is Satan who is doing everything he can to steal and to kill and to destroy us. It should not surprise us that as we seek to lift high the name of Jesus, as we proclaim that salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ, as we stand firmly fixed on the truth and the authority of God's word, we should not be surprised when opposition comes, when accusations are lobbed at us. For Paul here, He has things that are said that are not true. He knows that his life is on the line. 
want you to notice, beginning in verse 10, Paul goes into his defense against these accusations. The governor nodded to him to speak. Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul answers the first accusation. Remember what the first accusation was? He's inciting riots. He's seeking to overthrow the peace that we are experiencing in this Roman-ruled world. That's what he's trying to do. Paul says, listen, I've been here 12 days. You can't get a following to create a riot and to bring an uprising that's going to overthrow the Roman government in 12 days. Basically, Paul says, that's dumb. Doesn't make sense. You can't lodge that accusation when you consider the facts. And then he continues in verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's what Christianity was known as at that point in time, the way, which they call a sect. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope of God, in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he looks at the second accusation, which was that he had profaned the temple. And Paul says, listen, I accept the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets. I worship that same God. So I want you to notice that what Paul is doing here is appealing to the Old Testament to give validity to the reality that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, 15, when he promised to send one that would crush the head of the serpent, that from that point moving forward, the plan all along was for God to send his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Paul looks and he says, listen, I'm not disagreeing with the Old Testament. I'm not downplaying the law and the prophets. What I am saying is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He says the accusation that they are making is not true. I want you to notice that Paul does all of this without calling names without insulting anyone. And I want us to think, as we experience accusations lodged against us, how do we respond as believers? Here's my hope, that as Christians, we should be clear and winsome in defense against the accusations that are lodged against us. Notice that. Clear and winsome, clear in that we don't hold back the truth. We make very clear on that. 
We don't seek to appease people. Our ultimate authority is our Heavenly Father who has given us his word that sets for us how we are to live in this world in which we live. So we're clear on that. But then we're also winsome. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Look it up. It's an incredible word. It means you're not a jerk. <laughs> Cookies on the bottom shelf, right? It means you interact with people not as a jerk, but winsomely engaging with them, hearing their accusations, and then giving them the truth of what God's word teaches in a kind, caring way. You know, it's interesting as we approach Tuesday. I know some of you were wondering, is he going to talk about politics this week? It's the elephant in the room. Some of you may think, Michael, you ought to talk more about politics. If I was going to talk more about politics, I'd be a politician. But I'm a pastor. And here's what I think about everything that's going on in the world around us. That my responsibility as your pastor is to open God's word week after week after week to help you see the glory and the majesty of God, to help you understand the truths that scripture is painting for us the foundation of our lives as believers grounded in God's word. And so we will cover every topic that you can imagine as we diligently walk week by week through God's word. And I believe my responsibility is to equip you with a biblical worldview and then to turn you loose and let you do what God's called you to do. So hear me on this. We should stand for truth. We should stand on the firm foundation of God's word. We should be willing without compromise to proclaim what God's word teaches about the sanctity of life, about the sanctity of marriage, about true biblical justice, about the fact that every single person is created in the image of God and is valuable in his sight. We should be willing to gather together as believers and to champion those things. And hear me on this. No political party gets all of that right. Because if they did, they'd be a church and not a political party. So hear me. Tuesday, if you've not already done it, you need to go vote as believers. You need to exercise the privilege we have to speak into this nation in which we live, to champion what we know Scripture teaches. But as we stand on truth and as we proclaim that truth, stop being a jerk. Just don't. It tarnishes your witness. It doesn't give you the opportunity to speak into people's lives. And yet that's what God has called us 
to do. So as we respond in defense to those accusations, we do it in a clear and winsome way. I want you to notice Paul doesn't stop just by making his defense. Verses 22 through 27, Paul makes a declaration. you got to give Paul credit. Paul would write elsewhere, if you kill me, I get to go be with Jesus. If you don't kill me, I get to tell people about Jesus. Either way, it's a win. And this is exactly what he does here. Felix, having accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, I'll make a decision down the road. He gave orders to the centurion, verse 23, to keep Paul in custody, but give him some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. Listen to this. He heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. We find out that Paul was here for two years in custody. And often Felix says, Paul, come on in. Felix is thinking, maybe Paul's going to bring money and make a little transaction there, right? Paul says, I've got a transaction. You bring me in, I'll point you to Jesus. And it terrifies Felix and he sends him away. But then there's a little bit that's interesting about that proclamation. He brings Paul back in. We see this transpire over a two-year period of time where Paul continues to declare who Jesus Christ is to Felix and to his wife here. And he just constantly is pointing them to Christ. Pointing them to Christ. Here's who Jesus Christ is. Here's what he's done for you. You can experience salvation and be redeemed from your sins by placing your faith and trust in him for salvation. And I want us to take a page out of Paul's book here. As Christians, we should faithfully and boldly point people to Jesus. In the midst of the accusation, in the midst of the defense, as we engage with people who are often hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, often hostile to the truth that we know exists because of what scripture teaches us, even in our defense, we should take opportunities to constantly point them to Jesus. I want to ask you this question. Over the course of this past week, Christian, who have you pointed to Jesus? As we enter into a time of invitation here in just a second, my desire is to point to Jesus. And so we're going to take communion together as a church family 
Pastor Scott will come up in just a few minutes and play for us. We'll have an opportunity to partake today. And Jesus said, as he met with his disciples prior to going to the cross, that every time they do this, that is, partake of communion, they do it in remembrance of him. So as we take it today, I want to encourage you, be pointed to Jesus. It does not matter what happens Tuesday. You say, Michael, that's a little, a little harsh. <laughs> it matters. It's important. But it's not a primary importance. Because as long as Jesus Christ is on the throne, and he is. It doesn't matter what else happens. And so I want to point us to him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I want to give you an opportunity in just a couple of minutes. In the midst of the noise, in the midst of all that is going on in our culture, there are moments for us as believers when we need to be pointed once again to Jesus. When we need to be reminded of who he is and what he's done. Not only his death on the cross and his resurrection, but we need to be reminded of his promise to us that he will return. That he will right every wrong. That he will rule and reign for all eternity. Where we may be nervous, anxious, concerned. He's not. Which is why we need to be pointed to him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never taken that step of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have an opportunity right now that you are a sinner who needs to be saved from your sin. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you. You have an opportunity right now to place your faith and trust in him to receive salvation, forgiveness of your sins, to be made right with God. And so maybe you need to take that step today. By simply voicing a prayer of surrender to him. receiving what his death and resurrection provides for you. 
salvation. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Scripture tells us that before we partake of communion together, that we're to search our hearts. There's unconfessed sin in our lives that need to be quick to confess that. If there's unresolved strife in relationships that would hinder us from being able to partake and do so with a clear conscience, that we should abstain and rectify those relationships. That if you're here this morning and you've never taken that step of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you would not partake today. But my hope is, even if you're here and you're not a believer, that as we, as a church family, as believers, take the cup, take the bread today. That you would see who Jesus Christ is. Father, we are thankful as we gather here today that you already know what's going to happen Tuesday. You already know what's going to happen 20 years from now and 200 years from now and 2,000 years from now and 20,000 years from now. Remind us of that. Remind us who Jesus Christ is, of what he's done, as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, remind us of his sacrifice, and remind us that the one who sacrificed rose from the grave, he is the reigning king of kings and lord of lords, it's in his name we pray.